Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Welcome to another episode of Stop the Killing. And we've got an interesting episode today because I don't know much about this one at all. So I love that. (laughs) All I know is that it's in a library, a place I haven't been in for quite a while. Guilty. Guilty I am. So tell us, Catherine, what can you tell us about this particular library? Well, first, I want to tell the audience that when I told Sarah I want to do something about libraries, she said, no one goes to those anymore. To which <laughs> Don't out me. It's terrible. <laughs> I chastise her terribly for that because I, I love libraries. Yesterday, I was walking with a friend who told me she goes to the library in, in, in her town three times a week. Uh, so bless her. Well, I think the reason I haven't been going to the libraries, I used to go there all the time when my kids were little and we'd sure. you know, swap out the books. But now I have to listen to my books because my eyesight's so bad that, that. Um, if you've got your glasses on and you fall asleep in bed reading your book, you're falling asleep with your glasses on and it's never good for your glasses. So I've transitioned over to audible. Audio. I was going to well, say. Well, books are great. But it's, yeah. Aud- well, audiobooks are great. Aud- audiobooks are audible are two of the big ones. I use one, you use the other. That's kind of funny. But also, you know, our libraries here have a massive system, and I'm sure yours do too, to allow you to pull free audiobooks, which is wonderful. Oh, yeah, that's true. So it is a great resource. And so libraries are wonderful. I'm just well, going to put my them. marker in the sand and say, I love libraries. Yes, I'll, I'll <laughs> be there libraries. alongside you. Yay. So today I wanted to talk about this library case even though I want all of the library patrons listening not to freak out about the fact that, oh my gosh, a shooting in the library. Shootings in libraries are very uncommon in the United States. They're very uncommon anywhere. And where they do occur often is, this is going to sound terrible, but like on a college campus, it's more uh, likely to have somebody, and it's not just a shooting, like in any place it's where the public transits, there have been a handful of situations where somebody comes in off the street and they attack somebody who works at the library or somebody's in a library. That happens at any place of business. And so they're certainly not immune, I guess is what I'm saying. But nonetheless, there was a library shooting that I wanted to talk about outside of Albuquerque, New Mexico. So as you would say, shall we crack on? Crack on. I have to say it the right way. Crack on. That's terrible, whatever you're doing right now. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't ever do that again. <laughs> Let's just say accents might not be your strength, um, but okay. you've got other talents. So what would we know this particular case as? So this is an incident that occurred in New Mexico at a Clovis Carter public library system in a kind of a smaller town, 40,000 people, which is kind of a smaller town here in America. 
We're a big town. No, it's 40. the capital of New Zealand. Uh, no, I'm joking. <laughs> no, it's not. it isn't really. No, please tell me that's not true. No, it's not um, true. Don't worry. But it's a shooting that occurred in 17, so almost six years ago. Here's the facts. A teenager walks into the library, is there for a few minutes, steps into a bathroom, and then steps out of the bathroom and begins shooting. Four people get hit, two of them die. And then because of that, 911 dispatchers begin to get calls. We have at least two people. Two people have been hit? No one. Yeah. Is that person still in the library? Yes, they are. What are they wearing? They've got a black shirt and black, black hat. You have two eyewitnesses here who saw what they look like. You have two eyewitnesses at the public defender's office. We'll let somebody know as soon as we can, okay? Keep them there. Do not let them leave. Okay. I'm at the library. I'm with one of my coworkers that was shot. I just want to let you know where we're at. I see all the police officers out there clearing the building. Is she bleeding? Keep pressure on that wound, okay? You should have somebody out there to you, okay? Yeah. Okay, yeah. I always get the heebie-jeebies when I hear 911 calls because it takes me right into situations I've been in. Oh, I bet. Yeah. It's like re-traumatizing. And I'm sure it is probably for some people who've been involved in that. But wanted to point out some things on those calls that were great and helpful for police. First of all, the very first person says Clovis Library. He identifies where it is. And the first thing the dispatcher wants to know, is the shooter still there? Right? That's the first thing they need to know. Is there still a danger on the scene? What does he look like? It was quite a generic description, though, wasn't it? It was something along the lines of he's wearing a black T-shirt and a black hat or something along those lines. It made me think that if you are ever in one of those situations, I mean, I don't know how easy that ever is, but look for something that's just a bit more of a unique feature. But I'm wondering, having just said that, it's probably purposeful by the perpetrator to wear something that is blending in or a bit downplayed? No, I mean, I don't think so unless they're trying to get into some place and they want to match the clown suits that everybody's wearing at the clown conference. Right. You know, okay. I don't think so much so. I think it's very traditional because of media to think that, you know, if you're cool, you're wearing black. And that's, we see a lot of shooters dress in black. But, you know, you say what isn't there. I heard what was there. This was in New Mexico. The caller who identified the person didn't say he's this color or he's this race Mm. right away. The caller to me sounds like he might be white or black, but not Hispanic. New Mexico is down near the Texas border. And in the United States, it's very common for someone to identify somebody. And if they don't identify a race or color, chance to talk about somebody who's white. So really? Okay. So that's, that's what, what you're processing all that time. Yeah. Oh my right. goodness. So I heard there's a pretty good chance this is a white male, two big identifiers, right? And he's dressed in black pants, black hat. So that's a lot of black. I had a bank robber once who wore red ball jets, red shoes. Well, pretty identifiable, right? <laughs> that's what I I'm mean, thinking. Yeah. I mean, we we cracked the case, but I, I found the shoes, <laughs> right? And so I was like, are these your shoes? So he didn't identify any other colors. He didn't yes. say he's tall, he's short. What that tells me is 
this is an average looking guy, probably white, dressed in black, probably not racially diverse in any way, because he might have identified him as that. Maybe not in another country, but in the States, I think it's pretty common. And they also said he's a guy. So we know he's probably white, definitely male, dressed kind of head to toe in black clothes. That gives me a lot to look for. Who's going into libraries? People wearing sweaters and coats. I didn't tell you, but this happened in February. So, you know, I think it was a good description because I hear different things as long as you definitely hear different things from just those two sentences. That's quite incredible. Another thing about the dispatchers the woman called in and said, I'm with somebody who's been shot. She was an employee who was working in the children's section. She was hit, I think, in the shoulder. And as a coworker who obviously called in and was with her. And did you hear them say, keep pressure on that wound? Keep pressure on that wound. They're telling her right away, stop the bleeding. I did stop hear that. Stop the bleeding. Yeah. yeah. And I also thought it was quite smart of them to tell the 911 where they were. So police right. knew that they were civilians and not near the perpetrator. Well, and, and to know there's an injured person here, I'm sure that dispatcher was on long enough to find out where they were in the library. The library isn't very big. So that Mm -hmm. makes it a little bit easier too. Before we move on from the 911 call, it was interesting, the person that called that had two witnesses with them and dispatch was very much keep them there at the scene. Is that what we should all be doing if we've witnessed something? Yes. I think that it's really understandable that people flee the scene. That's what we urge them to do. But we also want them to call in with what they know. Even if they are afraid it's wrong, even if they say, oh, I just saw him in a minute and it was just a blur. All I saw was a gun and I don't know what he looked like. That's great. Because you know what I hear? I hear where that person was, that there was a gun and that there was only one person. So absolutely. We want them to share their information. So the police arrive right away. And actually the chief of police is the first one on the scene, rushes into the library and approaches the shooter and orders him to put his gun down. And he does. And suddenly the trauma is over. (laughs) How long did it take for the police chief to get there? A couple of minutes. God, they're fast. That always surprises me how fast law enforcement gets there. So the gunman's put the gun down. What is the police chief looking at as he's picking up the pieces? What's the carnage? So they have two longtime library employees, Wanda Walter and Christina Carter, 61 and 48, who are killed instantly. I told you there were four people, but I forgot there were four injured. Jessica Thron is the injured employee who is 30 years old and is injured, I believe, in the shoulder. And she's with a coworker. And then Howard Jones, 53, who's also injured. Jessica Thrun and some of the others worked in the children's section. Who else was in the library? Were there children in that section? Yes. And luckily, no, well, it's, I guess it's, is it lucky? I don't know. Screw luck. Somebody's just walked in with a gun into the library. But for whatever reason, this gunman didn't hit any children. Do we think that's intentional? Oh, no, that's a bad assumption. Alexa and Noah Molina are in the children's section and 10-year-old Noah is hit immediately. And his sister, who is 20, is hit 
four times and she's hit four times because she is laying on Noah to protect oh, him. Oh my goodness. So in all at the library, this gunman shoots six people. Two of them are killed. Four of them are injured. Hey, fellow true crime aficionados. I've stumbled upon the ultimate hidden gem, Dakota Spotlight by James Wollner. It's a revelation. Picture this, thoroughly researched, original, and peppered with real interviews. No sensationalism here, just gripping storytelling with heart. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you'll always want more. So cozy up and join me on the edge of your seat. Trust me, this podcast is the real deal. Start with the Mandan murders and prepare to be hooked. Let's uncover this treasure together. Listen to Dakota Spotlight. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it. Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. So I want to tell you something about when they interviewed some of the people who were there, they had a woman who said, I tried to squish down as small as possible. She couldn't really do anything else. Another person said, I just kept my head down. I threw the table against the door to barricade myself in there. And I thought he was coming, but then the cops got there. Wow. I hadn't mentioned it, but the shooter was a student, a child. Yes. A minor. Now how old was the shooter? Because you did say he was a teenager, but that's quite broad. He was a sophomore in high school, 16 at the time of the shooting. We learned after the fact that the subject had come out of the bathroom with a backpack. They find out in their investigation that, in fact, the backpack appeared on Snapchat <gasps> just moments before the shooting. Oh, my goodness. Um, the mm -hmm. caption underneath it that said, it begins. God, talk about leakage. Exactly. I'm assuming so that we, nobody reported that. No. And I think it was a timing situation yeah. too, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I think there is leakage. And of course, as we always want to talk about is, could we have prevented it? Are there things that we saw? And not to blame people, but I think it's really important to try to piece things together. So I'm going to give you some facts, which I'm inclined to do. And, um, and then <laughs> you tell it. me, <laughs> and you, you know, you can kind of tell me what you think about these things. On Friday, the shooter gets into a fight with kids at school, claims that he's being bullied, and he is suspended for two days. The killer has a dad who has legally purchased two weapons and purchased the ammunition 
and has them in an unsecured storage safe at home. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to bite my tongue till the end on that one. Okay. After the shooting, a search of the boy's home finds notes that outline his plan to, quote, shoot up a school, then kill himself. My goodness. It's almost a step-by-step playbook, isn't it, of what we've seen so many times. His intention in his own notes is that he was going to shoot up Clovis High School where he went to school. (gasps) Really? That's interesting. As the shooting was occurring within, you know, minutes as news of it broke, the father called the police department to say he believed that his son had taken the two guns and ammunition from his home and he was the shooter. Wow. I just got chills all the way down my spine right now. The killer was under the care of a psychologist. The shooter had told the psychologist that he had been talking about suicide and that he had been hearing voices. The shooter's father and grandfather had other weapons in the house that the 16-year-old had access to. I'm just going to tell you this one thing about the 10-year-old boy, Noah. Years later, when the subject was sentenced to prison, the family members testified that the 10-year-old at the time, who was then 12, was still having nightmares because he was still remembering that people told him to stay and pretend he was dead while his sister, who was shot four times, was laying on top of him. Oh, my goodness. Poor Noah. So... When you think about prevention, imagine that that's what you're trying to prevent. So those are just some of the facts about what we know about the subject before the shooting and then what we know about the killer after the shooting. They were able to interview him and they did find that he had lots of turmoil leading up to the killing that the doctors testified that he knew what he was doing and that he acted alone. So do you see any off-ramps in there? What, what mean, would have been a good, what would, just what would have been helpful? So many points along the way that we could have put some fire breaks in there, right? And I think the biggest one is there's clearly a child that is speaking to a psychologist about suicidal tendencies. Was there a connection to go to back to the father and say, hey, Do you have weapons that this child can access that need to be secured or taken off the property? I mean, if he hasn't had those guns, then this doesn't get past go straight away. I think in general, if I can just summarize the entire United States, I don't think that we do a very good job of asking people who might be suicidal and people who are around people who are suicidal, does this person have access to weapons? Yeah. And as we've talked about before, Although women are three times more likely to attempt suicide, men are much more likely to be successful 90% of the time because they use a weapon. So do we do something about separating potentially suicidal and weapons access? So I see three parties involved here. I see the school. Yeah. What did the school know? They had a kid who was in a fight, felt he was being bullied and he was suspended for two days. You don't suspend a kid for two days out of the blue. There clearly were previous challenges, right? Did they know that he was seeing a psychiatrist or psychologist because he was talking about suicide? 
did they know there was gun access? I mean, yeah. I just is there like a communication there's... loop there at all? And if there right. was somewhere, it's broken down along the way. You can see there was that triggering event for him where he was suspended from school. But where is that soft place? Who's got eyes on him in that space afterwards? Right. There needs to be a safety net under that somehow. Yeah, so that's great. I mean, those are great points to point out that the school suspension occurred on a Friday. The shooting yeah. was on a Monday. Yeah. And so he wasn't in school because he was suspended. He went to the library. But your comment about, well, where's that safety net? I think that we'd like to think that a threat assessment teams would do that. Yeah. Um, and I think they can if they're activated, but we need to do a way better job in between, right? Communication back and forth. When the kid was suspended, was there a school policy to talk to the parents about it? Was there any sense of urgency? Did the parents relay their concerns about the child? Were they aware that he had been planning the shooting for a while, according to his notes? Yeah, so, because that father jumped pretty quickly on the phone, thinking it was his son that had committed the crime yeah. near on immediately. So well, I and think, not the first time we've seen that, right? Where, no. where a parent calls in, we saw that up in Oxford, Oxford. High School, mm-hmm. where the parent calls in and runs home to look for a gun. Unsecured guns. Bing, 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 bing. I love that you've said that there were three sort of buckets of responsibility. We've got the school, the mental health worker, so the psychologist in this case, and then you've got the household that he's right. living in. And whatever that household is, we know that there was a father in there. We know that there was a grandfather that had also had left guns in that space as well. How can we get that across to people? This child had a whole school shooting plan right. under that roof. and how much did the parents know is a great question, but how can we get people to open the door and find that information in their own houses? No, I love that you asked that question. I kind of started saying this year, you know, your household's not a democracy, which is something my dad (laughs) used to say, which kind of annoyed me. (laughs) This is not a democracy, (laughs) but that's true. And I think sometimes that we don't want to make our kids mad at us. I'm all about searching every single thing in your child's room and in their car, in their closet. Kids are Gosh. kids are just turning into adults. They hide stuff at the top of their closets. It's not uncommon for them to pop out a back panel in a floor or on the back of a cabinet or in the closet and, yeah. and secret stuff there. And, and if you were looking for your kid's drugs, because you thought your kid was going to die because they were a heroin addict, you would rip their room apart. It's so true. And I think You know, I've had a conversation with a friend just recently about this. They've got a child that they've given them a little bit of freedom, but they find it very hard to take that freedom back now that the rails are coming off. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think parents are really scared, really scared to get the balance wrong of, Mm -hmm. okay, I've got a 17-year-old, almost an adult, living in my house. Do I have the right to go through and see what's going on there? in their room. Yeah. And I I mean, as a boring lawyer, I'll tell you anybody in your house, you have a right to go through everything and then apologize later. I always said to him, my job is to keep you safe and healthy and kick you out of my house because you're a successful human being. And I think that's a really great way to look at it. It's how you frame that supposed invasion of privacy. And there's certain ways you can do it. I always say, I'm just here to get you to grow, to be happy, healthy, and humane. I just want the three H's for my children. I like that. Done. But you you can also come at it from the legal standpoint. In America now, we've seen that if you 
leave those guns lying around and your children have access to them, you as a parent can be culpable for that. I mean, bottom line, lock up the guns. Parents should know that if they find things in the home that indicate this kid is, as he said, planning to shoot up a school and then I'm going to kill myself, that was in writing in his room. If the parents had found that, they should have been able to go to the school and the school and the police shouldn't say, that's not our problem. That's your problem, right? Because he didn't do it. So it's not our problem, says the police. And because he didn't shoot up the school, the school administrators say, well, you need to get him some care. No, he needs some care and feeding at school. There's clearly some issues at school. He felt he was being bullied. Yeah. He was suspended, even though he told his girlfriend in a later interview that he said he got into a fight at school. He was mad about being bullied. Right. That's what he said on that Friday. Sometime between Friday and Monday, as you said, a triggering event occurs and something that he's been planning, he executes. And he doesn't go to the school. Asked why he didn't go to the school. He's like, I don't know. I just didn't. So he didn't go to school because he wasn't in school. So why did you go to the library? I don't know. Did you know anybody at the library? No. It just boiled totally over random. to the point that he just needed somewhere to go. Right. Yeah. Right. And not to belabor the point here, but he was 16 years old and he says to the first person he raises the gun to, run, run. Why aren't you running? What? I'm shooting at you. That's what he says to this woman who survived. It must be unusual, is it? Well, it, it is because a lot of times the shooters are silent yeah. because they're all in their own heads and they say nothing. In this case, the kid, even when the police were walking him out, he looked at somebody who was shot and he literally says, oh, I didn't mean to hurt anybody. I don't like hurting people. Like, dude, hello. So that he's clearly not himself, so to speak, right? He's kind of stepped away from the kid who he is and he was. And sometimes we see this in writing. We see people say, people are making me do this, right? When somebody is, uses words like that, they are grievance collectors. Mm -hmm. You're making yeah. me do this. I mean, I'm just still kind of a little bit in shock about the things that he said, because it almost sounds like he's found himself in this position where he's got the gun and he's pointing it and he's still letting bullets fly. But in his head, right. he's still thinking, I don't want to hurt anyone. And those two things right. just don't marry up to me. They're quite in conflict, right? Yeah, They're quite exactly. in conflict in an instance where you have an individual who acts, but their words don't seem to match that action, they're in conflict with themselves. And oftentimes their leakage is there. They vocalize it to others around them. They write it down. They express it to the girlfriend, right? There's leakage there. And so in his mind, he probably believed that he, they made him do this. But he's been thinking about it for a long time, right? He's been convincing himself he's going to do this. To the point where he's gone off his own script that he was going to go to the school. You right. know, something's bubbled over enough over the weekend for him to just go and choose a completely random target. And he had more ammunition and weapons with him, but he essentially kind of stopped shooting. He is arrested with weapons and ammunition still with him. He's not doing what he even thought he was going to do. Like maybe in his mind, it was going to be a, well, I'll just go get those kids who are bullying me. So he's like fighting with himself. Yeah, right? yeah. And he says to the psychologist in his writing, say, I'm going to shoot up the school and I'm going to kill myself. And then when police get there, he doesn't shoot himself. He turns himself in. 
I know. That's interesting because he was suicidal, but it's right. just become into a murderous rampage and there's no suicide at the end. So they've got an actual alive well, shooter. And I do want to say it. I think in this case, this is a kid who did have the access to the guns. And so I don't know that he was so convinced this was what he needed to do. It's more like the circumstances all came together. He got suspended from school. He was mad at being bullied. Hey, I'll just take these guns and do this. And he foments this concept over the weekend to execute this plan that he's been thinking about. And he's been in counseling and he's talked to his parents and, you know, nothing's getting better. So I think that the bottom line is between the home, right, and the school and law enforcement, individuals who are on a pathway to violence, they have to have a feeling that there is hopefulness. A person who commits suicide has no hope that the future will get better. Is one way that we can actually make a change in this whole cycle to put in place a process whereby if a child is going down that suspension expulsion route, part of that checklist is right. are there guns in the house? What are the access to weapons? That right. has to be something that's part of the exploratory process because people don't just get suspended, boom, and it's over. There's a process always. There's meetings. There's mm-hmm. communication back and forward with family, I would imagine. Yeah, I love that. It's just literally adding it to a checklist. It's not a fail-safe situation, right? Because somebody can get access of a weapons elsewhere. I know a school shooter who went to his grandfather's house, who was a police officer, and took his grandfather's gun. You know, it's not an absolute science. And you know what? I'm just going to say in general, school officials a lot of times are just afraid to ask and talk about guns. There's obviously this effort in the United States to say, well, if you want to ask about my guns, you're infringing on my rights and don't bother with my, oh my privacy. I've got a constitutional right to own these guns. So school administrators don't want to get fired or don't want to have somebody talking on the news about how just because my Johnny got into a fight, now the school is saying they want to document whether I have guns in my house. So this fear of public outing of school officials is real in the United States. And I think that's a trend that should be reversed simply because we're not talking about constitutional rights or Second Amendment rights or privacy rights. We're talking about keeping people alive. And it is a fair balancing act to say, I don't care whether you have guns or not in your house, but can you please determine whether this child has access to weapons in your house or in other houses? And can you work to secure those weapons? more than they're even secured now. Change the locks, change the locations. And above all, one of the simple things to do is separate ammunition. It's such a crazy world that we live in that people can be offended by being asked if there are weapons in a house with a child that has got suicidal ideations. If you could put that beside Noah, little 10-year-old Noah, I'm offended by the fact that he's still suffering PTSD two years after the case. That's what we should be offended about. Let's go to the judgment side of things. How long did it take before this case came up in the courts, Catherine? So after the shooting, it was two years before the individual was sentenced. That was after he pled guilty to a bunch of charges, 30 charges. All right. Let's listen to the clip we've got of the, the judge's sentencing. 
the willful and deliberate murder of Wanda Walters. Your son's to life in prison at the Department of Corrections. It's not an easy calculus. There are no formulas to determine the sentence. There is everything I have heard from each victim and everyone else who spoke, from the experts, from the harrowing videos. Gosh, you kind of forget that there's going to be videos that people are watching in the court as well. It all brings it home, doesn't it? But what was the actual sentence that was passed then? He's been sentenced to life in prison. What does that look like? Well, two life sentences plus 40 years. You know, there was a question about whether or not he could be sentenced in the juvenile system. Remember, oh, he was 16 yeah. mm, when, this, when this happened. And, you know, why is anybody sentenced in the juvenile system instead of an adult? What a challenge for the judge. He could have given this juvenile a sentence that would have left him in the juvenile system. And then at the age of 21, there would have been reconsiderations. Oh, he was. He was <laughs> what does that mean, though? So that he would serve time in the juvenile system. And then when he comes of age, so 21, does it go back to court to be sentenced? It has to be redetermined? Again, it has or? to be redetermined. Oh, yeah. Right. And so it and it depends right on how the state law is set up. Yeah. But the idea that at 21 there would be reconsiderations, but it appears that the judge believed that it, he needed to be sentenced as an adult. And mm. part of that was the testimony that came out at his sentencing hearing. He was 18 at the time of his sentencing, and their testimony included a couple of factors. There was a doctor who said he had evaluated him that he believed the subject acted alone, and he knew exactly what he was doing. And that he also said that he had planned this event, that he had a lot of psychological turmoil leading up to the killings, and he had counseling and care along the way. He also said something fascinating about the posting on Snapchat. Ooh, detail. Um, he said... Even the presence of peers through social media can lead to more risk-taking. So unpack that. Sometimes we talk about people who post things. You embolden yourself yeah. by sharing your story. You believe people are watching you mm -hmm. and know it at the time and that it emboldens your actions, whether anybody sees it or not. I'm going to post this picture of me with a gun against my head or me with my backpack and say it begins and that people have seen it. And the fact that you've posted it publicly, it emboldens you because you believe you have peer support for it. Yeah, sure. And also don't forget a couple of likes there. Let's click up the likes, click up the likes, click up the likes. Okay. I'm, I'm on the right track. People have this, bought it. Right. So the family, not surprisingly, was sued because they said they gave him access to weapons. And the psychologist who cared for him was sued. Really? The psychologist, psychiatrist. I'm not sure which one he is, but yes, his oh. caretaker in that world was sued because they said he was having hallucinations, hearing auditory hallucinations in the days and the weeks before, and nothing was done about it. I always think, what is the challenge? You know, when the kid spoke before the judge, he said, well, I was kind of mad. Like, I was kind of mad. Like, what? That's, That's enough to take lives. We talk about survivors who have to find a way to recover family members. When a person goes to jail, every two years or so, there's a parole hearing. And every two years, they have to come back in front of a judge and say how victimized they were 
how terrible they felt, how this changed their life forever, how maybe they can't walk anymore, how they had to quit school, how they used to be an athlete, but they weren't. They're a musician, but the injury to their hand ended that career. Whatever those circumstances are, they have to relive that trauma through parole every year, every time somebody wants to come up on parole. So several bills went into the New Mexico legislature, proposed bills that to pass laws. And I'm just going to generalize here because there were so many that we can't go into the details here. But one of them would say that if you're a juvenile offender, given a life sentence, would be allowed to have a chance of parole after 15 years. And then every two years, right? If he didn't yeah. get out, there'd be a hearing, a parole hearing. Mm-hmm. So one of the women who spoke in front of the state legislature about one of these bills was Mandy Walters, Wanda Walters' daughter. And she said, I want to be my mom's voice because she can't do it anymore. Mm. And you can't make that go away. The hurt and the injury for these victims and survivors and the families, it never goes away. Yeah. It never goes away. Even Evie Fisher testified. She said, I was just beginning my journey to recovery. And now you're talking about doing this and I'll have to come back every two years mm. and, and, and relive this. So I think those are the kind of things that that are important to remember as we piece together, how do we deal with people in jail? How do we take care of survivors, victims, and their families? Because I know the defense attorneys who brought this bill up said, we want to give minors a, a second chance. They might not have made those decisions if they were adults. Well, that's very true. Yesterday, when I was prepping for this discussion, I pulled up a picture of this shooter, his jail cell picture that was taken a few weeks ago a smiling 22-year-old, and in fact, he is white, just in case you were wondering, with dark hair. And people might look at him and say, you know, he's 150 pounds and he wouldn't hurt anybody, but he did. And our system allows us to punish somebody who commits cold-blooded murder. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to Community Podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And check out our show notes for all the links mentioned. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, Please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it. Because it will happen. And it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. 
Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now.